Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, I just thank you that we are here this morning. Um, I just think there are a lot of places we could be where we would be missing out on what your Holy Spirit is intending to do in our hearts and our minds today. A work that we may not foresee or even expect, Lord, but there's a work that you will do because you said when we come together in your name, when we open your word, when we sing songs of worship, you said you inhabit those praises. And God, we invite you to really inhabit our presence and move in us today and give tangible evidence to your presence here with us. Because God, when it's all said and done, we just want to know you and the power of your resurrection along with the fellowship of your sufferings, Lord, that we might experience all of the good graces that you have stored up for us. We thank you for that, Lord. Trust you for it as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may remain seated. Um, Most of us have seen or heard the nativity story, or that is the story of the birth of Jesus in movies or plays or sermons and, or in books that we've read. In fact, you may have even been one of the rare individuals who read the story of Jesus' birth in, from the original source, the Bible. So that when it comes to the story of the birth of Jesus, most of us feel like we're pretty informed. Unfortunately, what usually has been uh, presented to us is a compressed version, often necessitated by time constraints. You know, if you're doing a, a children's nativity story, if it lasts more than 30 minutes, what you end up with is uh, kids in chaos, and so you have to get this thing in under budget. Even the cinematographical presentations have to fit in within a time budget as well as an economic budget. So. As a consequence, things are often shortened and and summarized and things are moved from here to there. And it's interesting because even if you just simply read the Bible itself, you can come with a misconception of the chronological flow of events. Consequently, we often fail to realize that when, when we measure from the manger to the coming of the Magi, in most presentations it's all happening in the same moment when in fact the Magi don't even show up on the scene to, for at least two years after Jesus' birth. In fact, the shepherds have long been gone by the time the Magi show up and they're no longer dealing with a newborn infant, they're dealing actually with a child to maybe even three years of age. And so when we're talking about the story of the birth of Jesus, it is really rather extended chronologically. We, some guess as many as four to five years are compressed within the biblical account that often gets slammed into a very short period of time. For example, when we look at Matthew's gospel, what Matthew does, he groups together facts topically so that the, most, the first major teaching in Matthew's gospel is the Sermon on the Mount but we're pretty certain the Sermon on the Mount didn't happen until the third year of Jesus' public ministry, and yet Matthew includes it as one of the first things because Matthew was more concerned about making, sending a message than he was trying to build a chronological account or tell a story. In fact, by this time when he wrote, Mark had pretty much laid out the chronological story, and so as a consequence, what he did was he was really trying to convince the Jews that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah and showing how he had fulfilled those requirements. Now, Luke, which is the only other gospel that covers the story of Jesus' birth, is very faithful in his chronology, but he apparently saw little value in repeating the information that Matthew had already provided. And so he doesn't go into the story of the Magi whatsoever, but he does add a number of other items that are not covered in Matthew's gospel. And so to get the story together, we really have to combine them. And, and that will require me to kind of go back and forth between the two somewhat. So really at the risk of being tedious or pedantic or, I mean, just plain boring, um, I want to begin today by reading the story. And I will offer some amount of, of a commentary as we go through it to help, you know, bring more uh, flesh to the bones. But basically uh, to say, as, as Matthew put it, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. So... First of all, our story begins in a very small and impressive village, unimpressive village, by the name of Nazareth. 
Nazareth was a town of probably not more than 150 residents at the time. It was hidden well from the main road in the midst of the mountains of Galilee in a settle at the base of the mountains. And it was a town that had been really populated only 100 years before Jesus came, that there were a group of uh, Jews from Judea, or from Babylon, excuse me, who were all direct descendants of the house of David, who had been induced to migrate back to Palestine because the area had, or Jerusalem, Galilee, excuse me, because it had recently been conquered uh, by John Hyrcanus, one of the Jewish kings of that time, and they settled there as the descendants of David. In fact, even the name of the village, Nazareth, comes from a root word uh, which means the Netzar, referring to a passage in Isaiah chapter 11, 1, where it says that out of the stump of Judah will come a branch, and he will, and that branch, the word there, refers to Netzar. In other words, Isaiah is saying a tree is cut down, all that's left with a stump, and then all of a sudden from the heart of the stump, a new sprout comes up and again grows into a great tree. And the prophet's saying, Judah is going to be cut down to the ground, but there's going to become a stump. Out of that stump is going to come a sprout, and that sprout is going to be the branch whom he identifies as a Netzar. And that's where they got the name Netzarine, or the name for the village. So that when it refers to later in the Gospels that Jesus will be called a Netzarine, it literally means he is a descendant of King David. Well, Luke is the one who gives us our earliest introduction, probably somewhere around 6 B.C., and he begins by saying that God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary, and she was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of the king of King David. So first of all, we have to understand that she was probably a young woman between 14 and 16 years of age at the most. And this engagement was an arranged marriage, and really the time between getting engaged and being married was considered essentially being married. When you, once you were betrothed, it wasn't like you could change your mind. You had already literally signed a contractual agreement to be married. And so you were considered a married woman, even though you may still be living with your parents, because a young woman wouldn't be moving in with her husband until her husband had completed adding a room onto his father's house. And when that was completed, then the wedding party would go to the bride's house. They would go back to the groom's house, throw a big party for seven days, and, at the, and, and then the relationship would be consummated and they would take up residence in their parents' home, much like millennials do today. But... Um, <laughs> We're coming so back to biblical times, aren't we? <laughs> but basically, Gabriel, it says, appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be frightened, Mary, the angel told her, for God has decided to bless you. You will become pregnant and have a son, and you are to name his, him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can I have a baby? I am a virgin. And the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby born to you will be holy he will be called the Son of God, and then he adds, for nothing is impossible with God. Well, Mary responds and says, I am the Lord's servant, and I am willing to accept whatever he wants. May everything you have said come true. And then the angel left. Well, Luke goes on to tell us, he says, a few days later, Mary hurried up to the hill country of Judea to the town where Zechariah lived. Now, Zechariah was a priest serving in the temple. We know what order he was with of. We know exactly when he would have been serving in the temple. He was married to a woman from Judea by the name of Elizabeth. And they had been barren until God had blessed them through a miracle of birth. And now in her old age, Elizabeth is pregnant, expecting a son who will become John the Baptist, a cousin of Jesus, if you will. But she stays with uh, her 
uh, after this experience, and she finds that her sister or her cousin understands. In fact, it says she stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then she returned home. Well, on returning home, some things had become obvious. She is now four or five months pregnant, and as we often say, she is beginning to show. So that, you know, people when she came back said either she's eating a lot of falafels or, you know, something's going on here. Well, Matthew picks up the story in verse 18 of his uh, first chapter by saying, she was found to be with child. And because Joseph was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. In other words, to divorce a woman, you just simply had to write on a document, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, and I divorce you, sign it and give it to her, and suddenly she's loose. And then, you know, there's no, no relationship. You have to do that in public as well so that everybody will know what happens. And so his idea is rather than deal with the, the drama of a wife who now comes to me pregnant, uh, it's better just to do that. But I'll do it quietly because think about it, in a community of 120 to 150 people, this pretty much would mark her for life. No one would touch her for the rest of her days. So that Joseph obviously loves her and he cares about her and doesn't want her to experience that fate. And so he says, I'll just do it discreetly. I'll do it privately so that nobody will know what happened. Well, as it goes on, it says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Again, literally, Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. God saves because he will save his people from their sins. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Now, as we read these accounts, it's very easy for us to kind of not think deeply about what's going on here. But these are amazing acts of faith on both of their parts. On the part of Mary to say, God, you can do what you want to do with my life, even though the thing that you're doing with my life could actually ruin my life. You begin to understand why God would pick a Mary, because she had that heart that said, Lord, your will be done. I I'm, I'm available. Even though in the culture and the context of her world, what she was making herself available to was the kind of thing that could have actually led to her death. And so she steps out in faith and says, God, I'm just going to trust you. Joseph, on his hand, is looking at marrying a woman who is already pregnant, which could mar his whole family line, his inheritance, could bring shame and reproach. In fact, later on in the Gospel of John, one of the accusations that they bring against Jesus is they said, basically, we weren't born of adultery. So that the accusation that Jesus was an illegitimate child was something that really did find ears in Nazareth and beyond. There were people who just felt it necessary to share the questionable circumstances of Jesus' birth. Uh, that's a unique dynamic we never see in our world today. But nonetheless, Joseph believes the angel of God. And it says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. He went and got her and he brought her home to become his wife. Well, about four to six days later, we read our, excuse, that uh, Mary now, in about her fifth month of pregnancy, Luke picks up the story again in chapter 2, and he tells us, he says, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be given throughout the Roman Empire, and all returned to their own towns to register for this census and because Joseph was a descendant of David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea. Uh, this would be a journey on foot. It would have taken, uh, on a good day, four to six days to get there. Uh, if there were other circumstances, it could take as long as two weeks. We don't know their condition at this point, other than that Mary is probably at this point quite large. And because it says he, he had to go to, Je death, death, excuse me, to, to Bethlehem because it was the home of David, uh, he says, he took with him Mary, 
who was obviously pregnant by this time. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her first child, a son. Now, oftentimes, the pictures that we have of the birth of Jesus shows a little, you know, uh, wooden barn uh, and kind of a creche setting where they're sitting under there with a lot of wood surrounding them. What we have to understand is almost all of the pictures that are generated of the birth of Jesus were created during the Middle Ages in Europe where the main building material is wood. In fact, it was the European kings, after doing the Crusades, who learned how to build stone castles. So before 1100 AD, there are no stone castles in Europe. They're all wood. Uh, They learned how to build with stone from the people who were in the Middle East because they have no wood and everything's built of stone. And the Crusaders being really brilliant guys with, you know, exalted, you know, first grade educations, some could even read and write, they figured this out saying, you know, Stone is better than wood, burns slower. And so they began to build with stone as well. Well, so that what is often a barn in our mind were actually caves. They used holes in the wall. Sometimes they expanded them, and they, the manger was not made out of wood as is depicted in this slide. They were actually made out of stone. Everything was pretty much made out of stone. So a manger is nothing more than a feeding trough that they would cut out of stones so that they could feed the horses and the cattle uh, that needed to have their food above ground in order to them to eat it without it becoming corrupted on the ground. And so it is that he takes them and it says... Um, And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn child, and she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the village inn. A village inn is not as nice as we might think of a Motel 6, you know. A village inn was really nothing more than a caravan uh, stop. It would be, a, a building might be in the center, there might be some indoor rooms, but mostly it was just simply a fenced-in area that protected you from robbery or dangers outside. Oftentimes people would sleep simply in the ground, on the ground in the weather. But there was no room available for them to stay there because so many had showed up for the taxation. It goes on, it says, And that night some shepherds were in the field outside the village. Guarding their flocks of sheep, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. One of the things we know is that the the Christmas season, a month of December and January, were not possible as the actual birth date of Jesus because shepherds aren't in the fields in the middle of winter, especially around Jerusalem and Bethlehem because of the elevation. It's just too stinking cold. So that it's more likely that it took place in the springtime or the early fall as scholars debate the exact time of his birth. But they're in the fields tending their sheep And there are particular kind of shepherds. Uh, The fields that were around Bethlehem were owned by the temple. And the sheep that they raised were sacrificial lambs that would be taken to Jerusalem and kept in what was called the sheep gate outside the temple. And that's where the priests got the sheep for offering sacrifices. So there's an interesting parallel that as there in Bethlehem where the sheep that are being raised for sacrificial purposes are being cared for, the true Lamb of God is born in their midst. And the first one that God calls to witness this event are the very shepherds who are tasked with providing the sheep of sacrifice. We hear in this the echoes of John the Baptist when Jesus first comes to him to begin his public ministry when he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Literally, the imagery is designed to help us recognize, not by the writers, but by God himself, saying, do you understand who this one is that is being born in your midst? It says that uh, as it goes on, they see this radiance of the Lord's glory shining around them, and they were terribly frightened But the angel reassured them. Uh, Being terribly frightened is kind of a normal and expected response. 
Don't be afraid, the angel said. I bring you good news of great joy for everyone. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born tonight in Bethlehem, the city of David. And this is how you will recognize him. You'll find a baby lying in a manger wrapped snugly in strips of cloth. Now, you and I read that. We go, what kind of a sign is that? Well, actually, it would have been quite notable because, first of all, Bethlehem as itself was a city that couldn't have been more than 500 people at the time. Very small little community. But also, there weren't a lot of babies that were sleeping out of doors in a manger, in a stone bed used for feeding troughs. And he said that he would be snugly wrapped in cloths. The idea that he would have literally rags wrapped around him. Again, we begin to find that a lot of our traditional images kind of get savaged by the reality of the world we're talking about. That there was nothing spectacular, there was nothing glorious, there was nothing externally that anybody would have looked at Jesus and said, that's got to be the Messiah. In fact, these men have to be told in specific detail, these are the things that are the markers that you are to look for. And so it is, hearing this and certainly being overwhelmed by the presence of the angel, it says that suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God, glory to God in the highest heaven, peace on earth to all whom God favors. All of this being enough to really impact the shepherds significantly so that they couldn't ignore what they had just seen. God is showing off at this moment and making it very clear. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, come, let us go to Bethlehem. Let us see this wonderful thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They ran to the village and found Mary. One of the things that is really one of the more enjoyable experiences when you go to the Middle East is if you go to Bethlehem today, it is a city of about 50,000 people. Uh, there are large buildings everywhere, and unfortunately, so many places that are the traditional sites of the events described in the Bible have had churches built on top of them, layer upon layer. In fact, the Church of the Nativity, which covers the cave that is supposed to be the place where Jesus is born, is actually divided into four separate sections. There's four different religious groups, Christian groups, all who have their territory and will fight ferociously to guard it. Uh, it's a beautiful image of Christian love and fellowship. But, but if you go on the hillside looking down on the city, you can still capture the sense of that moment. Why would sheep graze there? Because there's so much stone in the soil, it's impossible to farm it. And so it became traditionally a place of grazing of sheep on, the, on what is called the edge of the desert. And so as they run to the village, they find Mary and Joseph, which wouldn't have been that great a challenge. And there was the baby lying in the manger. And then the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary quietly treasured these things in her heart and thought about them often. We often wonder, where did Luke get all the details? In the two years he spent in Jerusalem and in Caesarea, I think he had plenty of time to interview Mary and say, tell me the story, because she had treasured these things in her heart. These had been unforgettable revelations and moments in her life. Well, we go on in Luke, and he tells us that eight days later, uh, when the baby was circumcised, that's Jewish law, the eighth day the child needs to be circumcised, and he was named Jesus. That's when also the name of the child is given to him in the eighth day. The name given to him by the angel even before he was conceived. And then it was time for the purification offering. Whose purification? Mary's purification. In other words, the law said that if you have a son, a woman must 40 days after the child is born go to the temple and offer a sacrifice in purification for herself. And it goes on to say, as required by the law of Moses after the birth of the child. Jesus was not purified. His mother was purified. And so his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And it's interesting. It goes on to say that now there was a man named Simeon who had lived in Jerusalem, and he was a righteous man, very devout, filled with the Holy Spirit. So the distance from Bethlehem to Jerusalem is 12 miles. 
Well, today Jerusalem has spread so much, the distance from Jerusalem to, Be- to, to Bethlehem is no miles. They've just kind of grown together. But in Jesus' day, it was a 12-mile journey, about half a day's journey. And when they come into the temple courtyards, Simeon is there. As they come into the courtyard of the women to offer the sacrifices that were required for Mary's purification, he comes up and he says he takes the child in his arms and he praises God, saying, how, Lord, now I can die in peace. As you promised me, I have seen the Savior you have given to all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. He is the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and Mary were amazed at what was being said about Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, This child will be rejected by many in Israel, and it will be their undoing. But he will be the greatest joy to many others. Thus the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. At that moment, Anna, a prophetess, also 84 years of age, which at that time, 84, might have been close to 1,004. I mean, people didn't live that long. And she says she came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God, and she talked about Jesus to everyone who had been waiting for the promised king to come and deliver Jerusalem. I can't help but feel that at this moment, like so many of these moments, that Mary and Joseph are kind of looking at each other and going, what is going on? They are simply people who chose to follow God's will in faith, hoping against all hope that they were really hearing from God. I, get, I would suspect that they often wondered, was that really God? Or was, that, was, that just, uh, was that a vision, a dream from God, or was it just sour ragatoni? What, what is exactly going on here? And in that moment of seeing these people just come out of this in the most random ways and coming saying, this is the one, this is the one, this is the one they probably begin to draw that unmistakable question, uh, conclusion that maybe he's the one. Being as sharp as a knife. But after the dedication of the ba- baby, they returned to Bethlehem for at least two more years. Because Matthew picks up the story in chapter 2, verse 1, by saying that magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Magi, who are magi? Literally, it's it's the root to our word magician, but it refers to a very specific, exalted class within the Persian culture. The magi were, first of all, uh, astrologers who read the stars and gave interpretations. In fact, Daniel is referred to as a magi as well. These men who seemed to be able to tap into the mysteries of the universe were also becoming chief counselors and advisors to the rulers, to the kings of the land. And so this area of Persia, which at this time was called Parthia, which has some significance, as you'll find in a moment, they they were coming from Parthia. They were Parthians, which was another term for Persians, had traveled the 700 miles from Babylon overland because they had seen a star, or probably more likely a conjunction of planets. They said, we, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when King Herod, Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would Herod be disturbed? Well, First of all, you just have to understand that Herod, by this point, had become a paranoid psychopath. I mean, there's no better way to describe him. He was so terrified. In fact, it's interesting because he had become the governor of Judea, and the Parthians had invaded, and he had to flee, and his brother was killed. Phaziel, his brother, his co-regent, was killed by the Parthians, and he escaped, later coming back with a Roman army and driving the Parthians out and reestablishing himself and eventually become ordained as king by Caesar Augustus over this entire region. So he really feared the Parthians, and he has an entourage of Parthians. These guys dwelt coming in their, their silk robes on their camels and horses with not just themselves, but servants, and probably, undoubtedly, a, a contingent of cavalry with, are with them as well. So this is a big scene. It's a parade coming into town of people who have been viewed as being the enemy, and they show up in town and say, we're looking for the king of the Jews. 
And I'm sure Herod was saying, uh, <clears throat> that would be me. Now, how fearful was he of being overthrown? Well, he was so terrified that he would be overthrown, he'd lose his position, that he murdered his wife. He said his favorite wife. He killed her because he felt threatened by her and her mother and two of his sons and his uncle, who was also the high priest, because he was paranoid that they were plotting against him. He was so paranoid that before he died, he knew that people would rejoice at his death. And so he had 600 of the top, most popular leaders in the nation gathered within the Hippodrome in Jerusalem with a command given to his sister that when he died, they should be all slaughtered so that there would be weeping in Jerusalem rather than celebrating. This guy was a total psychopath. So, I mean, he was just a, a, a maniac, and he had no value of human blood. So that when he hears there is someone else who is going to be the king of the Jews, he is deeply disturbed. And he's not a man who lives with being disturbed well. He acts upon and does whatever he can to end it very quickly. It says, when he called together the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, the Sanhedrin, the ruling academics, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, O Bethlehem, out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Shepherd is a synonym for king in the Jewish culture. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them, note, the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him too. And they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And then it says, On coming to the house. They're no longer living in the barn. <laughs> They're living in a house. They saw the child, not the newborn, which is the words used earlier, but the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him, and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, for a, which would be a gift for a king, incense, the gift to a priest, and myrrh, which was an anointing oil for death, the king-priest who was going to die. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until I tell you Herod is going, I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Luke steps back into our story in Luke 2.14 and says, And so he got up and he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophets, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then it says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. So we know the time frame. He had asked carefully about when did you first see the star, and then when he sends his soldier back to kill the babes in Jerusalem or Bethlehem, he says every child that's two years of age and younger, which gives us that reality that the Magi didn't even show up for two years after his birth. And so it goes on, it says, and Herod and, and to kill all the boys who are two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Herod died less than a year after this. He died one of the most horrible, excruciating deaths. Josephus tells us he tried to kill himself. He was in such pain. Did not succeed, but he died shortly, less than a year after uh, the killing of the babes in Jerusalem or Bethlehem. And, he's, and basically, the Lord comes to Joseph again in a dream and says, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. 
So Joseph returned immediately to Israel with Jesus and his mother, and most likely he returned to Bethlehem once again. But when he learned that the new ruler was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid. Archelaus was as ruthless as his father. And so then in another dream, he was warned to go to Galilee. So they went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets concerning Messiah. That's Isaiah 11.1. 1. He will be called a Nazarene or a Netzer. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And then finally in verse 40 of chapter 2, Luke summarizes, he says, And the child grew, became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And the next time we find about Jesus, Luke goes on to tell us he's 12 years old, in the temple. Well, when I began this short series of messages, I, I started by stating the fact that the birth of Jesus was not an afterthought, and we might even say that it was a forethought, because simply we found that his birth was something that had been foretold repeatedly, forecast by the prophets, as the writer of Hebrews says, it had been forecast at many times and in various ways. That essentially, John wanted us to be sure to know that he was God from eternity, who nevertheless, as the writer of Philippians explained, being in very nature God, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This was the great mystery we talked about, the mystery of godliness, that he was fully man and yet he was fully God. It was so strange that even Mary asked the question, how can this be? And so today, some people say, well, I can't believe that because that's impossible. And that becomes really the point. Because even the angel in answering her question says that our God is a God who takes impossible things and makes them not only possible, he makes them realities. Because he said, nothing is impossible with God. So that those of us who still follow him have the opportunity to regularly discover, if we are so willing, that he can do for us things that otherwise would be impossible to accomplish. When I reflect again, as we talked last week, about how that James said, you have not because you ask not, it, it, it beggars my mind sometimes when I think about how many things could have been different in my life if it had just been sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit to simply ask God to do things that we just oftentimes look at and go, oh, that's too bad, and move on. When God says, ask, and I'll give it to you. God can do the impossible. He can, the whole message to me, or the heart of the message of the virgin birth is that God does impossible things. So when people say, well, that's impossible, I said, yeah, that's why we have this word miracle. <laughs> miracle doesn't mean something that I can figure out. It means something I look at and I'm left in a state of mystification. Which brings me really to the last thing that I want to emphasize in this whole series. And the best way I can put it is that God really likes to do humble. Now, it's counterintuitive to think that God would be into humble because we're not. <laughs> we're wired completely different, you know. We want to be humble in a very recognizable and appreciable way. You know, I want people to look at me and go, my, he's so humble. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, kind of like wear our humility like a badge. But God obviously isn't working with you in that regard. And so when you try to figure out, God, what are you doing in my life? Before I was a Christian man, I just went from, from pride to pride to pride. It was never my fault even when it was. I was always right even when I wasn't. I was always good even when I was bad. This was a great man. I was crazy about myself. And then I start following you and I start seeing stuff about myself that not only does nobody else like, I don't like either. And I wish, God, could you just make a two of me and get rid of me so I don't have to be me anymore? I don't understand people who are going into chirogenic crypts and freezing themselves so that if medical science progresses, they can come back and continue their life. You know, why? 
I would just love to live to be 100. I figure by 100, I'm going to be really rotten, not only on the inside, but on the outside too. What possesses people? Because they're laboring under this fantasy that every day in every way, I'm getting better and better. Now, I don't think I'm getting worse every day, but I think I'm discovering how bad I am every day. That you begin to realize that there is this purient dynamic to human nature that is never going to be cured, can only be lived beyond. That if you walk in the Spirit, you're not going to fulfill that nature. But the moment you don't walk in the Spirit, you go right back to that person and you become them again. So that when people say, I don't know what happened to me, my answer is real simple. You were walking in the Spirit, you did really well, and then you decided that you didn't need to anymore. And you just slid right back into what you were all the time. Because God isn't in the business of reforming my flesh He's in the business of transforming my soul. He promises that one day he'll give me a new body because I need one for many reasons. But I don't want a repaired version of what I am. It's so much, I'll tell you, it's so much nicer. For years, we could never afford a new car. In fact, we could afford junkers that I spent a lot of time looking under the hood as if I knew what I was doing, but I couldn't even pay a mechanic, so I tried to figure it out. I figured you place enough parts, sooner or later something's going to click. And I remember the first time I got in a car that actually started when you turned the key, that actually went down the road straight, I mean, it had all of these accoutrements. The thing actually works. The radio works. The heater works. The air conditioning works. Who's the genius of thought of that one? And I like new. I thought new is good. May I never have to do old and broken down again. May I have new. And I think about when I look at my life, my body, why would I want a renovated version of this rolling wreck? I want a new body. But you see, part of that process is you begin to understand that there is a humbling experience that comes in my life. And you begin to understand things about God, that He does His best and He does His greatest works, not through the best and not through the greatest, but through the common, the ordinary. He does it through people like you and me. And He often does it without us even realizing what He's doing. Just as Mary and Joseph stumbled along and figured out, whoa, 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 God does that with you and me. We say, I'm going to follow you, Lord, and here's my life, and I'll try to do the best I can. And you just begin to find your life taking journeys and pathways and things happening. I mean, granted, as we read the story, there are angels and angelic hosts. There's conjoining planets and, 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 and silk-robed magi riding on ornamented uh, camels and all that kind of stuff. By the way, we don't know if there was two, three, or 96 of them. We don't have, all this is tradition that's coming over the years. But we need to understand that they are not the main characters of this story. Uh, they are bit players, they're extras, they're props put in place to augment the real stars who are in the story. That he doesn't appear first to princes or to priests or to prophets. Instead, he first comes to a simple young country girl, no more than 16 years of age, who happens to be engaged to a simple tecton, is a Greek word, a craftsman. It, it can mean a carpenter, but most likely he was more into working in stone than he was in working into wood. That they come from a place that's so forgettable that Nathaniel, one of Jesus' first disciples, simply says, can anything good come from there? I mean, this is really down and out. His first worshipers are not the Magi. They're the shepherds. And you need to understand that shepherds in their culture and their time were more suspicious than auspicious. They were more notorious than notable. Literally, when these loners passed through town, if it wasn't hot or nailed down, it tended to disappear. So that the Israel had this love-hate relationship with shepherds. They thought about David, the great shepherd, and their hearts warned that history. But that kind of guy hadn't been around for a thousand years. He had been replaced by these guys who basically had a problem keeping their hands off of other people's stuff. So that when we think about Jesus in the manger, we have to understand that God foretold that he would come in humility. In fact, Zechariah said, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, 
And then he used the word ani, literally means poor, humble, weak, lowly. You'll recognize him because he's going to come in a form that you would never recognize. He comes lowly. Isaiah told him, he said, that he would have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. I love the way Peterson puts it. He says, there's nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. He came as a baby, a baby like any other baby. He had to be diapered. That's why she's wrapping him in claws. He goes pee-pee and poo-poo. <laughs> he had to be nursed that he might be nourished. He had to be cuddled that he might be comforted. And he cried. He cried because he was human. He could feel the hurt, the pain, the loss, the disappointment that all human beings feel. He was tempted in every point, just as you and me, but without sin. Because one day he would cry, not because he was human, but he would cry because he's God. Luke later on tells us in chapter 19 that as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another, which was all more than literally fulfilled. And then he adds, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Does Jesus cry over you? Do you recognize the time of his coming to you? If you come to Christ, he rejoices over you. He tells us that in chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, that all heaven and all the angels all rejoice over one person who comes to that relationship with Jesus. But you need to understand as he looks at you also, he weeps over you. There's, there's a, there's, because it's, it's the weeping. And it's interesting, the word wept here means to mourn, to lament in pain and grief. He literally laments and travails over you because of where you're at. This image we have in our mind that God is saying, don't come near me because I, I can't be tainted by your sinful thoughts and ways doesn't come from Scripture. It isn't the voice of heaven. It's a voice that comes out of the pits of hell. No, God is the God who grieves over what he sees happening from the very beginning, so that when he looked at the earth in the days of Noah, it says, it's translated in the old King James, God repented. Poor choice of words. It doesn't mean he repented. It says God grieved over what man was doing. He grieved and he sent a prophet in the name of Noah for 120 years to call them to repentance. And when they would not, he did what always happens. He terminates those people. The whole point is that God wants you to recognize Him before you come to that moment as well. He wants you simply to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. One of the things that Paul said in writing the Corinthians, he says, now is the day of salvation, now is the time. And one of the things we, can, we often overlook as human beings is we're waiting for time to pass so we can get to something else. And oftentimes we're so trying to so far look so far ahead that we miss the fact that right now is the most pertinent moment of your existence to this day. The moment you're in right now is the most important moment because the decisions and the choices and the commitments we make in this moment will determine every other commitment decision we make on into the future. And that's, th that's the reality of time. Choices that you will make. And they will define where your journey goes. And I say, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, I would just say, what are you committing to in the time? If you're a follower of Jesus, 
Are you committing yourself to being a follower of Jesus? Whatever that might mean, no matter how that comes out. Because like Mary, like Joseph, we have no idea what that means when we make that commitment. I don't know how that's going to flesh out in my life, but I know it will. If you don't know Jesus, then you haven't even started the journey. You're still waiting at the train station trying to decide whether or not you want to get in, get on. But I can simply say that today is the day, not tomorrow, right now it's the day, this moment, is the day in which God calls you to make that commitment of your life. Would you pray with me? Father God, I ask that you would help us to hear these things in a way that would make a difference in each of our lives. I know for myself, Lord, I can only do the best I can to try to communicate within the context and the limitations of my own humanity, my own understanding, my own limited intellect, Lord. I can only try to say it as best I know how to say it, but you have a way of speaking our language, the language of our soul. And I ask in the name of Jesus that you would speak to every one of us on that level, Lord, that my words and my comments would be forgotten and turned to dust, but Lord, your spirit speaking into us would be something that would grab us and take hold of us and would become the governing principle of our life that we listen for your voice and we follow you. I pray for those who profess to be your children. I believe they are, but they're wandering and drifting and struggling, Lord, right now. I pray that you would just revive their souls, restore to them the, the joy of their salvation, that they would recognize that their life right now is functioning in the perfection of your timing the things that they even don't understand, don't like, that are frightening and discouraging are actually things that you have allowed as part of your molding and shaping of their life after your will. Give them the grace, Lord, to embrace that rather than curse it. And I pray for those who have never committed to you, Lord. They may have been sitting in one of these seats for their entire life and they've never committed to you. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that today it would all come together, it would make perfect sense, and they would realize the thing that I have been running away from my entire life is the very thing that I've been searching for my entire life. Help them to stop, turn, and receive you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in our worship time together, I invite you to partake of the elements of communion. But I also would just simply say that if you would like prayer or you'd like even to talk briefly about what, what I've just shared, that myself and other people will be available over on the wings. This may be a little bit too uh, high profile up here in front, but more discreet over than the wings. But there'll be people who are glad to pray with you, regardless of what the issue is in your life, what the need is. Um, but we just find that we have not because we ask not. Maybe today there's something in your life that you are desperately overwhelmed by and you want God to change. And what really is missing is just simply saying, let's two or more agree on touching anything and it will be done for us, that God would respond to you and me right now where we're at in a powerful and wonderful way. Let's give him that opportunity to prove that he is a God who can do impossible things.